0: One minute at a time. I was blind, but now I see. Working jobs we hate, so we can buy shit. We don't need ideas are If you had
1: one shot, everything I'd ever read, heard, seen was now organized and available. We're
0: not your fucking khakis. Life moves pretty fast. The Biohacking Secret Show. In this episode of the Biohacking Secret Show,
1: You know, industry is just finding different ways of telling us what they think we want to hear. So my initial thought was to self-publish. And I figured I would just hand this out to my clients and maybe a few local nutritionists and naturopaths would want to buy it. But I just had no idea that book was going to become the phenomenon it did. Last I looked, most people's brains are screwed onto their bodies, right? There is no such thing as a mind-body connection. It's all part of the same functioning or dysfunctioning system
0: Hey, what's up, guys? I am here with Nora Gagaudis, author of Primal Body, Primal Mind, and the new Primal Fat Burner. And we are gonna talk about how you guys can become primal fat burners. What's up, Nora? Yeah, um, both of us. <laughs> <laughs> Nora, Nora and I have been uh, filming what happens when health and fitness experts try to dabble in technology for like the yes. past half an hour. We're trying. We've got cameras everywhere and different things syndicating, and it's it got it got interesting for sure. But we are now live, yeah. and we're hanging out with you guys, and it's going to be awesome. Um, so, Nora, let's talk about Primal Fat Burner. What made you want to write this book? A lot of people have been hearing about the ketogenic diet, the paleo diet. There, they, they've probably even transitioned and and are dabbling themselves. What did you see was missing, or some mistakes that that people? Oh, make?
1: I don't know if we have enough time, but <laughs> uh, you know, I, I saw a lot of problems with you know. So I was the first person actually to write about uh, an ancestrally based uh, ketogenic dietary approach back way back in 2009, actually the earliest version of primal body, primal mind. And then, you know, and then the more officially published version in 2011.
0: And that Uh, book is phenomenal for for people that don't have it. Like, um, primal body, primal mind. I've, I've, I've owned for not quite a decade, but a long time. And when I was really, really sick in 2011, it helped change my paradigm. So thank you for for writing that book, and anyone that's listening that doesn't have it, definitely pick up Primal Body, Primal Mind. Um, but yeah,
1: yeah, I'm I'm still quite proud of that book, and I, I think you know it's one of those things. I mean, <laughs> it was like fifteen. It's months. your magnum opus. Yeah, it is a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it, it was something that was gradually written over a ten year period, and you know, I I think it has the potential to stand the test of time. There, are, you know, a few things I you know would love to tweak in it, but for the most part, I think the core message is something that I haven't changed in the last, um, you know, however many years it's been now since that book actually was published. Uh, and, and because of that, uh, you know, I, in other words, I haven't sort of gone whichever way the wind blows, as tends to happen uh, very oftentimes with thought leaders. It's just sort of like, well, this is popular now, so I'll write a book on that.
0: Don't eat meat. Only yeah. eat meat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> don't drink coffee. Only drink so. coffee. <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. It's, it's, whatever is po- it's whatever people want to hear. And that's never been my interest. I, I don't think like a marketer. You know, my attitude is I, I have a more than 20 year background a, as a clinician working with the brain. And also, you know, working with all manners of, of, of health-related, you know, issues. And I'm very foundational and very functional in my thinking. I've had an opportunity over that time to see what works and what doesn't. In addition to being just a really avid, committed researcher, and, um, and I've, just, I, I've gotten better and better at that over time. And so I saw a very real need because of what uh, my clients were experiencing Now, of course, we're talking about primal body, primal mind right now, but uh, to be able to provide them with information that really wasn't all in one place anywhere else. And so that book kind of came out of that need. Um, I was uh, having tremendous success as a clinician. Actually, at that time, I was working for someone else. uh, And, you know, I was having so much success that my boss said, look, I want you doing what you did with this client and this client with everybody, (laughs) so... And, uh, I'm trying to talk everybody through this stuff and realize it just wasn't tenable.
0: What, uh, what were you doing with those oh, clients? Like what were, what were some of the big aha moments on the way to where you are today? Where you like do this, this, this people get insane results.
1: Right. Well, like for instance, there was a kid that I was working with, um, who an 11 year old boy who was struggling with, uh, attention deficit problems and having horrible tics so he'd been, you know, diagnosed with both ADHD and Tourette's and all this stuff, and uh, and when I first moved out to Oregon and started to work for this clinic, he'd already been going there for a while, and it was a very very busy, very successful neurofeedback clinic. I was down in Eugene, Oregon at the time, and I was in you know I was hired to basically come supervise the clinic, and uh, I was working with this kid whom I liked a great deal and he was really struggling. He wasn't making the kind of progress we were expecting. He'd make a little progress, then he'd backslide. And so one day the kid walks in, his head is hanging down, he's depressed, he's dejected, and, I'm, and, you know, and I cared about him, and I'm like, hey, talk to me, what's going on with you? Why are you looking like that? Oh, he said, you know, on the way over, I was ticking again, it was driving my mom crazy, and then she blew up at me, and Uh-oh. now she feels bad, and I feel bad. And I'm like, well, talk to me about why you feel bad. I said, you know, are you are you angry with her? Are you, you know upset? Are you, you feel guilty? What's the deal? And he says, I feel guilty. Now this is an 11 year old male, right? Um, he said, I can't possibly know what it's like for her to have a son like me. And she can't know what it's like for me either. And he slumped down in the chair and kicked the wall and said, I just, I hate this, you know, ADHD stuff. I hate the ticking. I hate the Tourette's, you know? And I'm like, kid, you sit tight. I'm going to go talk to your mom. I went in the waiting room, I sit down with his mom, she bursts into tears, she's like, I don't know what we're doing, it's like two steps forward, one step back, we're almost out of sessions, I don't know what we can do. And then I remembered that I had this whole other area of expertise that I could bring to the table, and I just said, talk to me about what he eats.
0: So we weren't, at the time, we were strictly focused on exercise. Strictly focused on brain brain
1: training, right? Strictly focused on brain training, which has, I mean, it's incredibly powerful sometimes, even when there are dietary issues. But in this case, it wasn't able to override what were some foundational dietary issues for this kid. And the kid's a total, turns out, the kid's a total carbivore, you know. He eats bagels for breakfast, he likes tater tots, he likes, like you know, there's like very little, you know, any quality protein, you know, crappy fats, whatever. So I gave her my elevator speech, such as it is, and, uh, and I said, look, just for two weeks, just two weeks, try this, right? Uh, and it gave her the basic, you know, thing. And she said, wow, that's going to be really hard. You know, he likes his carbs and stuff, but okay. All right. You know, <laughs> we'll, we'll do it your way. And she says, you know, our whole family will do it. We'll do it to support him, which was really cool that they, that she did that.
0: How did you, how did you phrase but, it?
1: How did I phrase it? I, just you know, said, I said, you? anybody can do anything for two weeks. And uh-huh, I said, okay, good. i right. You yeah. will know something that you didn't know before. We will at least be able to rule something out. Beautiful. She agreed. She said, okay, so we'll, the whole family will do this. One week later, we had a normal kid. One week later, we had a kid who was no longer ticking. a kid who could focus a lot better, whose moods were better. The only problem was that his carb cravings were like crazy. And he was really struggling with that. But he also saw that other things were better. So he was motivated. And I went to my boss and I said, look, um, I, I think we've got a hypoglycemic situation here on top of some other things can I address this differently than the way we've been doing it he said you're the expert go for it and it was a total turnaround you know we were able to deal with the blood sugar issues through neurofeedback uh, you know to kind of help him get a leg up on that and then we talked further about uh, all of this and now however many years later this was way back in 2000 um, uh, I'm still periodically in touch with that kid I mean he ended up Uh, graduating, uh, you know, near the top of his class, he's successful, um, and he's about 10 feet tall. (laughs) He was, you know, this cute little blonde kid, and now he's like, oh my gosh. But, uh, you know, he still, um, you know, stays in touch from time to time, and and that means a lot to me. But anyway, we started having successes like that, And, and my boss came in my office and closed the door, and he said, I want you doing what you did, you know, here and here and here. With everybody that comes in here, and I'm thinking, okay, whoa, uh, all right, and and it was really interfering with my ability to do my work because I'm trying to get them hooked up and do brain, and I'm trying to talk to them about all this stuff. and, and anybody who's looked at primal body, primal mind, it's like 400 pages, right? So uh, people's eyes were they were interested, but their eyes are glazing over; they can't take it in. And one weekend, I went home in a fit of pique and just sat down in front of my computer and just started you know, this is how I type. Primal body, primal body. Diary
0: of the mouth, diary of the I'm
1: fingers, a typer, typist, you know, <laughs> and I typed up about a 10 page article and that I started printing out, you know, at Kinko's I'm just handing out to everybody and they like this and, and stuff. But then I thought, Oh, but I totally forgot to mention this and I should have talked about that and I, whatever. So I started adding to it and I had, you know, some of my clients were were medical doctors and nurses and you know, Researchers of different types and whatever, and, and it's like, yeah, you know, they're like, well, where do you get your, you know, like, this is very interesting and I like it, but where did you get your information? It's like I have to start providing. I made
0: it up like most of the other experts. Yeah, just make it up. You know, <laughs> it sounded it up. good,
1: <laughs> but no, I, I started adding because I I had stacks and stacks of peer reviewed papers, you know, at home, so I just started adding, you know, those studies into, you know, the uh, the thing, and it just began to grow over a period of about 10 years, and it mushroomed its way into about a 100-page long manuscript. And then I, I I had some epiphanies, and I just thought, oh, my God, I, I've got to revamp this whole thing. i got to rewrite it. And, you know, I really ought to publish this thing. And uh, so my initial thought was to self-publish, and I figured I would just hand this out to my clients, and maybe a few local nutritionists and naturopaths would want to buy it, but I just had no idea that book was going to become the phenomenon it did. Uh, it was totally unprepared for that. And within, within less than two years, I was being contacted by, uh, a, a very sizable independent. I think it's like the largest independent publisher. And they just said, Hey, uh, we want to take this over and do it upright. And it was a stretch for them because it was totally outside the type of book they normally did. And I was, I'd been up until like four years ago, three or four years ago, I was their number one book. Um, Did Did
0: you tell them to show, show you the money? show me the money
1: oh god so in I, hindsight I, you, you probably could Hindsight, laid. i really needed an attorney you know give me um, some
0: jj version <laughs> give me some yeah, jj something. version money
1: <laughs> see i'm not a, i don't my mind doesn't think that way and which is very good for my fans because my first concern is then uh you know my first concern is giving them quality information based on really hard-nosed research that i do myself you know um, I write all my own articles, I write all my own material, I don't have any ghost writers, I don't have guest bloggers and things like that, and I, I put my heart and soul into it because I care a great deal about suffering, I, and I, I, I'm, I've had it up to here, and I, I, I've had it up to even higher, you know, with misinformation and disinformation, and it just seemed to me a whole lot of ideas needed revamping. So that's where Primal, you know, Body, Primal Mind came out of. What I saw in the ensuing years, you know, having this very uh, ketogenic, I you know, kind of concept within the that ancestral health perspective was something that marginalized me actually in the paleo community for a lot of years because you know a lot of the paleophiles are quite young and you know sure that they're immortal and they're all into CrossFit and whatever and they like their carbs and. So anybody who tells them that, oh, everybody's different and some people do better on carbs or Mm -hmm. 80, 20 is good or, you know, whatever, you know, it's what they want to hear. But I wasn't interested in telling people what they want to hear. I was interested in telling them, you know, what was going to help them optimize their health, live longer and better, uh, optimize the functioning of their brains. And I don't give a rat's patootie if it's not what they want to hear. This is really what I found. And it's, it's not just me being stubborn. It's, you know, 20 years of clinical practice behind me, um, um, you know, where I've been able to see what works and what doesn't.
0: Right. Yeah. that That's what I was going to ask you about. Cause you come from such a cool place where you're, you're like me, you're a nerd for the science and digging into that and then how to, you know, practically apply the science. But then beyond that, like the story you were telling, you then get to see how that affects the mind with, yeah. with your neurofeedback. So like what was some, What were some of the, the, the dietary changes and what did you see in the clinic? How how did the brain change as a result of those?
1: Well, you know, for a lot of people, it's sort of a process even wanting to get there. Now, in the early days of my, you know, neurofeedback practice and all of that, you know, people were coming for neurofeedback. They didn't know me as an author in the, in the health, you know, health genre and the dietary genre. Um, and uh, And so... You know, the process of neurofeedback involves seeing a client twice a week, sometimes for six months or more. So I had the opportunity over that time where I had some had somebody in the chair to be able to talk to them and 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 kind of work some of these ideas into the conversation where they seemed appropriate to discuss, (laughs) you know, especially where somebody had just I mean, it was really clear to me that there were certain things going on that needed to be addressed in a way that neurofeedback couldn't.
0: Someone yeah. was like eating a ding dong during their session.
1: <laughs> yeah. Or like one person who's like severe ADD, severe anxiety, just agi- most ad- one of the most agitated nervous systems I've ever seen in my life. It was affecting every aspect of their life, their relationships. They couldn't sleep. They were anxious. They were you know, depressed. They were completely scatterbrained. And, um, and neuro- neurotic as the day was long. And we had a list of <laughs> symptoms we were trying to address with neurofeedback when they had the presence of mind actually show up for their appointments. And I finally said, look, we've got to start talking about this other thing. And they're like, well, why would I need to talk about that? You know, I'm perfectly healthy. You know, look, I, I hardly ever get sick. I'm at work every day and whatever. Look how energetic I am. I was like, you know, nervous energy is not energy. <laughs> That's I'm
0: not, not Yeah
1: right? You know, yeah. this is somebody living on coffee and Red Bull. That's that's so, a great
0: quote. Nervous energy is not energy. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's not energy. You know, this was not genuine energy. This was nerves. This was being neurotic. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know, they, they did this whole diatribe about how healthy they were. And then I showed them their progress chart. I said, look at all the symptoms we're tracking. Yeah, you know, your, your, Last I looked, most people's brains are screwed onto their bodies, right? There is no such thing as a mind-body connection. It's all part of the same functioning or dysfunctioning system yeah. all understood together in context. And so she was not going to get at those issues unless she was willing to address something very foundational. And one of the things that I discovered as a, as a neurofeedback provider and, and having worked, you know, and, and uh, with a lot of different things in life that you can be doing, you can be doing the best therapy in the world. You can be doing the best protocol in the world. Um, it's still not going to put a nutrient there that's not there. It's not going to you know, take away some interfering substance that doesn't belong. The brain and the body need certain raw materials in order to function, and they need to be able to do this without interference from things that are more compromising than supportive of their optimal health.
0: An example you know, being like way too many carbohydrates and the insulin spike that comes. That
1: or gluten or other perhaps types of sensitivities.
0: Glyphosate. It,
1: you know, I, I address things on, on a wide variety of levels. I, I don't see carbs as the root of all evil. I see them. I see some people tolerate them better than other, Mm -hmm. but, um, you will never get me to say that they're optimizing for anybody. I don't, there is no scientifically established human dietary requirement for carbohydrates at all for any length of time and, and in any form. Um, And and you won't find that in any medical textbook, any textbook of human physiology. Uh, We can generate all the glucose we need from a combination of protein and fat in the diet. We don't ever have to consume it. Now, some people seem to be able to get away with it better than others, or they think they do, at least for a while. Um, But it doesn't necessarily mean that that is what is optimizing for them.
0: Yeah. And and, and we were talking about this... Transition period too, because like there's a lot of people who have you know they, they've heard high fat diets good they dive right in and then they feel like but and yeah. and your response when we were offline you were like yeah it's normal
1: well or, you know there's this little phenomenon known as the ketogenic flu right because you know we we're designed to rely on one of two full time sources of few right or one of well so either glucose or ketones and free fatty acids. I'll, I'll combine the you know, fat, basically, right?
0: We won't give ketone its own macronutrient quite yet.
1: No, no, no. Well, but I mean, you know, so it's, yeah. I mean, so it's you know, certainly a byproduct of fat metabolism. So, um, and, you know, if, if you've been running on glucose your entire life, which is what I refer to as metabolic kindling, uh, which needs a lot of replenishment. It needs a lot of management. You know, you've got to eat regularly you know, to stay on top of it and to maintain that glucose level, and your body's obsessed with maintaining the lowest necessary level of glucose at any given time. Um, then uh, when you take that away, as you have to if you're going to adopt a fat-based ketogenic approach, then there's a, this little limbo time that I sometimes refer to as metabolic purgatory where you're you're still kind of, your body's accustomed to looking for and relying on sugar as a primary source of fuel. But, you know, that ain't forthcoming. And so there's a little bit of an energy crash that can occur. Um, Not everybody experiences that. And, you know, one of the things we also discussed beforehand is that, you know, for me, I was already eating a largely ancestrally based diet. so I was, you know, doing pretty well. I'd already, you know, definitely improved the quality of my health.
0: Which in and of itself cuts carbs a lot. And you start, it does. yeah,
1: right. you're eating more like
0: where the carbs are in cell walls and stuff like that's coming from.
1: Right. But I became a lot more strict about it. Um, and I found within a couple of days, I'm like, wow, where's this been all my life? I mean, it was fabulous. And I, you know, I knew I was onto something. Um, but that obviously isn't the same story for everybody. Some people do transition really easily. I mean, a lot of people do. But then there are a lot of people that they hit a wall, an understandable wall, because the fuel that their body has been relying on uh, full time is suddenly not forthcoming. And so, where's it going to come from? You know, the body's pretty inefficient at turning protein into glucose and all of that. And it's harder and it takes time to create the enzymatic changes necessary to switch over, you know, it's kind of switching over from rocket fuel to diesel, you know, takes a little bit of work and a little bit of time. You know, on average, maybe three to six weeks. But for some people, it can take a lot longer, depending on how metabolically broken they are, deranged, how old they are, what other issues may be at hand, you know, that that they have to deal with. It's possible for everybody, but it's just a matter of, um, you know, uh, you know, addressing things as you need to, and in in my book, I talk about you know how to look at this. The some of the different things that may ca- be causing, because for some folks, it's not just that metabolic purgatory, right? That that waiting to for the fat burning to really kick in. Initially, you know, people throw off ketones as a waste product as they start to produce them because your body isn't efficient at using them yet, and uh, all of that. So you can producing ketones, by the way, or having them in your bloodstream is not the same as necessarily using them efficiently. And that's something that I also, I, I, I really make a point of talking about in my newest book, Primal Fat Burner, because so many people, they're just, they're chugging you know, MCT oil, they're taking all sorts of exogenous ketone supplements, just don't even get me started on that whole subject. And I see it as a real problem, and even a potential danger. Um, but I, I, I'm digressing a little bit. so. Uh, part of what may be happening in some cases that, you know, sugar trigger, triggers opiate centers in the brain. And some people are more sensitive to that than others. For some folks, that's the kiss of God. And you take that away from them and now they're in hell. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it's a real struggle because they had an addiction to, to sugar and to carbohydrates that are now being yanked away from them. Or maybe they also had um, a particular sensitivity, which can be ferreted out through Cyrex labs, you know, uh, to a particular a couple of particular proteomes and grains like pro- gluteomorphin, protonorphin, or also casomorphin, um, it, which, is in, which is in dairy products, um, which is a, an opiate trigger. This is, these are morphine like substances in these foods that some people are also really addicted to. And, you, and these foods oftentimes get yanked out of the picture, and suddenly, oh my gosh, you know, it's a problem. And it, it, for people that have really severe uh, reactions where it's just like, oh my God, I practically have to go to the hospital. I don't know. I was just so agitated and I was just going through hell with this. It's like heroin withdrawal, right? It's opiate withdrawal. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, for those folks, again, I mean, there are things that you can do uh, and if you've got the right testing going into it, then you can kind of head some of this stuff off. But um,
0: you what know. type of tests from Cyrex labs do you go to to kind of shortcut that pain period? The the, 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 array, the,
1: the array three and the array four. Yeah. Okay. The array three is the gluten immune reactivity panel, which looks at nine different proteomes of gluten and not just, you know, is there an IgA reactivity to alpha gliadin, which is a celiac marker, but there, you know, there are at least nine proteomes that are very well known in the immunologic literature to elicit immune reactivity. Um, and they test for all those, you know, which is eight more than everybody else tests for. And they also test for IgA and IgG immune reactivity. And they look at transglutaminase enzymes, which can tell you whether or not, um, your body is experiencing damage either to your gut, to the epidermis, uh, throughout, you know, anywhere in the body or the dreaded, you know, the dreaded transglutaminase six to your brain as a result of gluten exposure. So it looks at all that stuff in a way with within one to two standards of deviation of sensitivity, right? So very little falls through the cracks.
0: And Um, and how do you use that? So are you like, are you saying, okay, you're gonna you're gonna have pretty bad withdrawal (laughs) from your test here, or um, how do you take that information and kind of you know use
1: it? I'll warn people in advance that this that yeah, you may experience some pronounced reactivity. And either things are handled a little more gradually, or if we just sort of decide to take the plunge, I mean, there are, uh, you know, you know, D-phenylalanine sometimes can pr- help you hang on to your endorphins a little yeah, bit. Yeah. I was going to
0: ask about that. Like, does, does the 5-HTP or the phenylalanine or the SAMe? Or-
1: well, D- L-phenylalanine, no. Uh, you know, 5-HTP, no. But D-phenylalanine is unique and that it basically helps your body, um, Hang on to retain uh, uh, your own endorphin levels much better, um, and it's it's actually for pain. I mean, it's it's it works and in, in it's unique. I only know of one company actually producing it. It's lidkey. Um,
0: How do you spell that? L I
1: D K E. And uh, the product is called endorphogen. And I, as far as I know, they're the only company producing it. D L phenylalanine contains both, but the problem with L phenylalanine is that. It's a precursor to norepinephrine and dopamine, which may be uh, anxiety-provoking for some folks. It's energizing, but only the diffraction actually helps with this. And so, um, anyway, there's, there's that.
0: I mean, that's a pretty awesome hack for potentially minimizing some of that keto flu or metabolic purgatory. Well,
1: depending on you know, the metabolic purgatory itself. It won't mitigate that. I don't recommend this for everybody who has ketogenic flu. Only people that have those, uh, those, yeah, I've got it. Okay. So, hey. Ta-da.
0: Oh, nice. All right. So that's, that's what it looks like. Endorphin. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: It, it's, it's an awesome product. Okay, anyway,
0: cool. I'm going to pick up some of that.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's good. Um, so, but, but if, if you just have the ketogenic flu, there are things like L-glutamine, you know, which your brain can, it's sort of like bicycle training wheels, right? Or things like Gymnema Silvestro, which is an herb that that not only can improve your insulin sensitivity a bit, but also pretty much kills your cravings for carbs, right? So it can really, really, really help people overcome that.
0: That's Um, huge. Is there a brand you like with that?
1: You know, um, there, you know, MediHerb makes one where you just have to take one tablet three times a day or two tablets three times a day. But uh, that is a healthcare practitioner brand that not everyone has access to. You can also go, Herb Farm has a liquid and you can use that. I think liquids are more effective generally for herbal supplements than capsules or tablets. Yeah. Uh, but it's, you know, what I used to use with my clients was 4,000 milligrams or four grams three times a day. And then if, you know, that take care of 80% of everybody's carb cravings and then if it, if, but if, if it was somebody that was really having a hard time doubling that dose, took care of it. So, I mean, if, if wow. you're just buying capsules, you know, good luck with that um, in the grocery store or something like that in health food store, because, they tend to be come in like five hundred milligram capsules. It's like crazy how many you have to take, which is where the Meteor product is great because it's this tiny little, you know, uh, streamlined little tablet that's very easy to swallow. Um, and
0: does it have those dosages? The the whoa, I mean that's huge. So many people deal with carb cravings, and that knocks it out for like. 80% or more?
1: Uh, well, if you, if you double the dose, it would pretty well knock it out for just about everybody.
0: Whoa. And do we have any idea how that's working? What pathways it's impacting?
1: You know, that's a really good question. I know. I, I think there was probably a time where I used to know the answer to that. And it's been such a long time since I've looked at the mechanism.
0: We, we can dig ahead. into it. There's, it's impossible for us to know everything and have it. <laughs> I, you, just, you got me excited. Those are two huge hacks. So like, anyone that just missed that those are knowledge bombs carb cravings four to eight grams three times per day of i'm gonna i'm gonna mispronounce it I but start it's,
1: with the minimum gymnema sylvestra
0: yes yes and uh herb farm is one of the brands you mentioned they've got well, I, if you,
1: I say herb farm you know because they're a good brand i think gaia is a good brand too i don't know if gaia makes an uh gymnema sylvestra though i have to say but i know that herb farm does you can buy it in a big bottle uh you know you can you know Dose up the tincture now. I, how you would dose the tincture is going to be different than just taking those tablets from Medi Herb, but um, but at any rate, you have to experiment with the dose. Find your minimum effective dose, and you know if it's not working, just take more because it will work.
0: <laughs> if it's not working, just take more. <laughs>
1: yeah, well, and glutamine is something that you're that will you know your brain can kind of use it in lieu of glucose in lieu of incoming glucose, and it's a glycogenic amino acid, so your brain will convert that pretty quickly. So that can help stave off hypoglycemic symptoms. I, I consider it kind of a bicycle training wheels thing. I don't advocate taking glutamine long-term. Um, there are potential risks with taking lots of glutamine long-term, but but short-term for adaptation phase, it can help.
0: I'd imagine it also helps for some of the people dealing with like intestinal permeability or things like that, where maybe they're not absorbing so well, you get them some glutamine. Yeah. Well, yeah. I
1: mean, so it's the preferred fuel for the enterocytes of the, you know, the small intestine, right? Um, uh, And uh, it's, so it is potentially, you know, healing that way. And there are lots of things that can be used to heal. So it's fine. But but the, the thing to keep in mind with glutamine is that there are also some cancers that, that make use of it. And so you don't want to be taking glutamine all the time forever. Um, you know, it's one of those things you use, I think, uh I I, I'm inclined to recommend using it judiciously as you need to and don't just be downing it all the time because, you know, we all don't have cancer until the day we do, right? So (laughs) again, my my dietary approach is not a high meat approach. That's another thing that kind of marginalized me a little bit in the paleo community, which is all about the meat, and I love meat. Um, and and uh, most of you know, I, I definitely have things on my plate that had parents, you know, at one time. Um, but I, I, I'm very much about moderating that protein intake, limiting it to what we need, uh, and and uh, and not try, and trying not to exceed that. Yeah, and that's not only part of what's important in terms of establishing an optimal state of ketogenic adaptation. Um, like Atkins called what he did ketogenic too. And it really kind of wasn't. I mean, it, it was in, in a very weak sort of fashion that, uh, that still lent itself to all kinds of problems. And one of the reasons so many people failed on the Atkins diet, I think, and I remember talking about this once with my friend Ron Rosedale that um, I, I, I said, you know, I kind of think the reason so many people failed was because, uh, because the, the high levels of protein that people were consuming on that diet, it sort of indiscriminately, we're getting converted in a significant fashion to glucose and getting used the same way. So they were still relying on glucose as their main source of fuel, only there was less of it coming in, you yeah. know, and, and um, it was more apt to get, lead them back to cravings again. And he was also really into carb substitutes, which I'm not a fan of. Um, I have a problem with that a little bit because it kind of maintains the same mindset, you know, right? Um, and a lot of those things are just processed crap anyway. Uh, most of it is processed crap um, but also it, it re- retains the same yeah you can make keto pancakes and keto desserts and all kinds of stuff if I see one more keto dessert book I think I'll start pulling my hair out of my head uh, you know or, or or paleo dessert book or whatever but um, but it it, it it keeps that mindset in place where we expect those things and you know we're inclined to, to seek them out and expect them and and I think it makes for much easier backsliding.
0: And you're, you're talking about that that reward effect on the brain, kind of like that drugs give us, right?
1: Well, right. Yeah, well, to some degree, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, I, you know, I'm a little bit more of a, of a purist, I guess, in that regard. Not a total purist. If I were a total purist, I'd be hunting and foraging for all my own food. <laughs> you know, Um And, you know, at some point it may be relegated to that. But for the time being, you know, I I am a bit of a pragmatist. I also think it's very important to take the world that we live in today into account. And by no means, just because our ancestors did something, do I necessarily think it's that we need to do it the same way today. I see the ancestral approach to things as, you know, looking at the ways in which we evolved, right? Looking at what, are, what were the selective pressures that shaped our, our physiological makeup and, and our nutritional requirements, right? By, in terms of what kinds of foods would have predominated in our diets for 2.6 million years or whatever, however long it was. Um, that, uh, that, to me, that is the only rational starting place. But to me, that's just that, it's, it's a starting place how be it, but just because our ancestors did something doesn't necessarily mean it was optimal for them, much less optimal for us today. How would we know? And that's where I dovetail human longevity research into the, into the conversation, into the equation, looking at how to take some of the most key foundational principles in that approach and apply them to what longevity research tells us is optimizing in that respect. And it's not about living forever, but if, if you're doing something that statistically is likely to help you live longer, it's because it's helping you avoid disease. Right. Yeah. And so that's to me. And I also take into account, um, something I sort of uniquely take into account is, uh, the whole specter of autoimmunity. Right. Um, now I'm not a big fan of a lot of AIP programs. I've got problems with some of that. Um, with a lot, I mean, it's, it's just, they're just too generalized and you really need for a person for it to be realistic to get at things a lot more specifically, figure out what's going on with them specifically and address that.
0: That, That's because like the blanket advice, like cut grains, cut dairy, cut alcohol. You're like on a long enough timeline, the person's going to backslide.
1: Yeah, well, you're carpet bombing so many restrictions that it's just not realistic long-term. And you're likely long-term also to, to do things to reduce the diversity in your microbiome and all of that. Look, it's possible to be immune reactive to broccoli, right? To have that yeah. be part of the equation. I
0: was that in 2011. That broccoli messed me up. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah. I, I, I remember thinking I was going to like have a, a super healthy meal. I cooked up some grass-fed beef and like made like a broccoli salad or something. So I mean, I didn't really know what I was doing at the time. Well, so I, I'm not cooking it or anything, and I ate it. And like half an hour later, I was doubled over, just like oh, yeah.
1: wreck. Well, Well, there are complex sugars and things we don't deal with, but yeah, some people actually have an immune reactivity. It's not just that they're giving you a little gas or I don't know what that was for you, but I mean, it's possible (laughs) be something contributing to your autoimmune. So without appropriate testing and the only lab doing accurate testing is Cyrex labs, you can't know for sure. I think it's, it's, it is wise as a matter of course to simply eliminate grains and, and I'm also, um, Unique, I guess, a little bit within the paleo and ketogenic genres, in that I am not. I I I advise people to avoid dairy products unless, unless, and only if they have tested with Cyrex appropriately, uh, and that Cyrex has helped them determine that yeah, this just isn't a problem for you. And then I hate you because I miss butter and cheese and those things. (laughs) Uh, But the, the fact of the matter is, is that for years I thought those foods were okay for me. Um, uh, now I had, I had eliminated gluten already, but, uh, gluten, I decided gluten
0: to- or grains across the board. Both,
1: both. both. Okay.
0: There's a lot yeah. of people will cut gluten and then they're still getting some issues from the grains, sneaking in those gluten. Of course. Things. And the thing <laughs> is,
1: there's a phenomenon known as cross reactivity. Yeah. And, 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 what that means is that there are other substances either closely related, um, you know, for instance, like some of the non-gluten grains like oats or, you know, uh, uh, or millet or, you know, whatever, that, that may, uh, they're related and, you know, they're kind of in the same kind of grain family, but they don't technically contain the problematic forms of gluten. But they may be closely related enough that some sensitive immune system simply cannot tell the difference and will react to them in an identical fashion. The Cy- Cyrex Array 4 will ferret that out for you. That looks at 20, uh, uh, I think, 23 different or 28 different compounds, 13 of which are known to be cross-reactive. Is, um, is
0: this, I mean, this is the the gluten reactivity cross-sensitivity analysis or something like that?
1: Yeah, the cross-reactivity <laughs> panel. Um, it, it, but it, it's also, <coughs> that particular panel also uh, is looking at are you sensitive to certain foods that tend to be over-consumed on a gluten-free diet, like eggs, for instance, yeah, okay. you know, or soy, or you know, whatever? Not, not all of which are necessarily cross-reactive with gluten.
0: Even like but, coffee and chocolate, right?
1: Well, it's not coffee in general. What it is is the cheap processed uh, coffee, either pr- the pre-ground stuff uh, or the like, the instant coffees and things like that. Ah. So, the manner in which those things are processed and stored, I, I think that they determine that this is a cross-contamination issue that happens. Oh! Uh, or it could be that the processing also does something to alter the proteins in those in the, in, in the coffee bean. So coffee, those- coffee
0: enthusiasts coffee listening worldwide just jumped with elation.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've got a funny story about that because my best friend, you know, uh, tested positive for that. And, um, and, and, it was like, this was somebody who like lived for their morning coffee and they gave up the coffee and they were miserable every morning. They just hated it and hated it. And then when I learned this little twist, it's like, well, no, it's not those things. It's just this other type of coffee, you know, just don't get coffee in greasy spoon diners and don't, you know, and, gas stations and you know waiting rooms and things like that
0: yeah. don't you know, drink shitty coffee
1: right don't drink crappy coffee it yeah. should be you know if, it, if it's whole roasted organic coffee beans that's a different animal altogether and and so they were standing there as I was getting this information and 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 they're, they're standing there saying does this mean I can drink coffee and their eyes are like welling up with little tears <laughs> and I savored the moment I said yes <laughs> i'm going to starbucks <laughs> like, you know so anyway which i don't know if that, so
0: is starbucks is starbucks all right from that perspective well they're
1: using whole roasted coffee beans you know i i haven't looked at you know i i haven't looked at that directly but i they are using whole roasted they're not organic right yeah. they, they claim to you not spray their stuff but anyway Okay, cool. Total tangent here. But anyway... Um,
0: it's interesting. You
1: know, <laughs> and, and it's not chocolate. It's milk chocolate, right? It's milk protein. Uh-huh. That is the problem.
0: So this For isn't somebody, a bean issue. This is...
1: Ah. No, no, no. So, but the, the half of everyone that has gluten immune reactivity actually has dairy as a cross-reactivity. Dairy is the most common cross-reactivity there is. And... Um, and uh, and because of that, because of the high prevalence of gluten immune reactivity in the population, uh, and the, the, the problem with uh, and, and you know and dairy is such a common cross reactivity, unless somebody has actually done the testing to help uh, determine whether or not that's an issue, I, I strongly urge people to avoid it as a dietary inclusion because there's there's just too much risk with that. plus, you know, Milk in and of itself is, is mainly a high-carbohydrate food. And, of mm-hmm. course, it has high fat as well if it's whole milk. And even if it's grass-fed milk, you're still – the combination of carbs and fat together, not the best thing. Right. right? It, you know, it, it, this, this is, if you're trying to lose weight, it's a little like throwing kerosene on a fire to put it out. So the,
0: the insulin stores more fat? Right. Like-
1: right. You're more likely to store that fat with the insulin generated by, by the carbohydrates in, in milk products. Now, at the time I tested for Cyrex, my only dairy consumption was grass-fed organic, you know, grass-fed uh, butter, and whole fat, you know, full fat cream, you know, from grass-fed, whatever. And then I was doing some raw milk goat cheese and sheep milk cheese, and just the occasional maybe piece of cow cheese, but it was really clean, right? Everything I was eating was really clean. And, um, I thought there's just no way this is a problem for me. And my Cyrex panel lit up like a Christmas tree in every single dairy category. I mean, it was like, it was a shock. I didn't expect it. I didn't think I was reacting adversely to dairy. So you couldn't
0: feel any symptoms, any perceptible symptoms. Did you, did you notice improvements when you cut it?
1: Yes, I did. Uh-huh. Um, and, and if <laughs> I get exposed, you, right? <laughs> you know, and if there is an inadvertent exposure, it's, it's, it's clear to me that there's been an exposure. That's a clean windshield effect, right, with gluten. Yeah. But, but that doesn't mean that everyone's going to notice. There are all sorts of effects that can be taking place behind the scenes that may not be noticeable to you. Because gluten doesn't necessarily affect everyone in exactly the same way. I will say that gluten as a dietary inclusion is compromising to literally everyone, whether or not they have an immune reactivity to it. There's no reason for anybody to consume it ever. Um, Dr. Alessio Fasano will tell you there isn't a human being alive that can even digest it. This is not food for us. It's a contaminant, right? Gluten is. And and you know the, the thing is, is that everyone that consumes gluten, everyone, uh, regardless of whether they have that immune reactivity, it will elicit the release of this enzyme called zonulin, which controls your gut permeability and your blood-brain barrier permeability, always, for at least a few hours following that meal, which means that those channels are opening up in a way that allow whatever may not be well digested or whatever substances that wouldn't normally be allowed through those barriers to just flow right in and, and elicit an immune response from your immune system. So I sometimes call it a gateway food sensitivity, when you consume enough of it, you're much more likely to develop immune reactivities to other foods. I mean, I've got stories about that, but I don't really want to get off on too many tangents here. It's so easy. Um, uh,
0: everyone, everyone likes tangents. I probably encourage it, too, because then I get interested and we go further. I think you're spot on. Like It's it's almost like a Trojan horse or, or a perfect storm, to keep throwing out analogies, but we've got, like, we've got gluten and the zonulin. Then we have these glyphosate numbers that are going up year over year that are also. Yeah, and I want
1: to talk about that too, because I, I really respect Stephanie Seneff, right? She's, yeah. she's awesome. She's one of the most brilliant researchers we have alive today. So, I mean, it's like, you know, I'm not worthy, uh, kind of a thing. You know? <laughs> <Wayne's> <laughs> <world>. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're not worthy. <laughs> We're not worthy. Um, but, but, you know, in her mind, it's like, oh, so this is the reason grains are bad is because of glyphosate. No glyphosate didn't take a good thing and make it bad. What it did was it took something that was already compromising to everyone and made it much, much worse. Yeah. Right. And that's a really important distinction to make. And I'm looking forward to having that conversation with her someday. And I, and I will. Um, but, um, it's the, really the only criticism I have of her work. Otherwise she's, gosh, she's so spot on about so many things. Uh, but yeah, I mean,
0: it, it makes complete sense too. Like if, right. if, if we're cutting, if we're breaking down these barriers, and then you've got people with mercury in their mouth, or all of these hundred thousand plus man-made chemicals that you know you've got babies being born with like two hundred fifty chemicals in their body before they're even out in the real world. That's going to get into the brain. You got to right. right,
1: and that's and that's that's a tangent I would like to get off on because <laughs> so, so look as as a um, you know as you know, the hominids that we are, right? Uh,
0: Great word, hominids. Yeah, and it, yeah. <laughs> Not used enough. Or
1: maybe it's a little more, appropriate, more, more properly hominin today because <laughs> they changed it now. But, um, and, and they spell correct, keeps trying to change it back to hominid. It's supposed to be a hominid. <laughs> Whatever, anyway. Uh, that we still have a wild psychology, <laughs> right? So... You know, we have a feast or famine mentality, among other things. In other words, you know, that w- when food is available, we're, w- you know, we we want it, right? So we are, um, we, we, for the first time in our evolutionary history, we have this unnatural access to this unnatural abundance of food and food-like substances. And nobody has to take more than two steps in any direction to be able to grab a whole you know, handful of something that they might want to call food and shove it in their face. And, you know, and we were not good about that off switch and especially eating a carbohydrate diet. There's no off switch. Right. We're much more likely to over consume food um, with carbs. Uh, nice for Monsanto. But anyway, uh, you know, I'll get off on that, you know, conspiracy theory tangent later. But but I also want to follow it up with the fact that what we're wired for is to recognize the kinds of threats that we're wired for as a species are tangible threats in other words you know living in the wild and you know saber-tooth t- uh, you know tiger jumping out from behind a bush and chasing you around that's a very tangible threat you know we know to be alert to that and to react to that cantankerous mm. um, woolly mammoth you know or some you know maybe a warring tribe right whatever coming uh you know, coming at us or a major storm or volcanic eruption or whatever. We're
0: wired. It's like a a quick death.
1: (laughs) A quick death, you're right. Anything that that is very clearly threatening to us physically, that's what we're wired for. But, you know, we also evolved in a fairly pristine environment. I would say that today in this modern world, we are living in a more dangerous and compromised environment than we ever have throughout our entire evolutionary history. But what we have is this mass complacency about it because we're living in these lovely climate-controlled environments. We have this unnatural abundance to an unnatural, you know, uh, uh, you know supply of food and food-like substances. You know, we have our, our creature comforts and things around us, and that gives us a certain complacency. We don't have saber-toothed tigers jumping out from behind bushes anymore. Um, you know, we got Netflix and Monday Night Football and whatever the heck else. So what do we care? And yet we've never been more compromised as a species than we are now. We're we're coming at this 21st century uh, lifestyle with an already compromised genome over the last however many, you know, 500 generations or so now since we've adopted agriculture. Um, You know, when we spent over 100,000 generations as hunter-gatherers, suddenly now 500 generations, which is just a drop in the bucket of consuming You know, basically a largely carbohydrate-based diet. We've lost just over ten percent of our brain volume in that amount of time. By the way, that's another little factoid I talk about in Primal Fat Burner. And yes, all of the resources are there to look that up. That's not even a debated issue; that's well known. So, um, anyway, so we're already compromised.
0: We we actually are getting dumber.
1: We are getting yeah. Well, you know, have you have you seen what's on cable TV? I mean, well,
0: I was watching this 200 channels
1: of like nothing or 500. Yeah,
0: I was watching this Osho documentary from like the 70s, and he said something, and he's like, he was talking about how, and this was what you know, almost 50 years ago. He was saying sex, drugs, and rock and roll was what everyone was, was talking about in the 60s and even some of the 70s. And he goes, those things have been replaced. Sex has been replaced with food. Drugs have been replaced with pills. And rock and roll has been replaced with television. And that was like 50 years ago. And I was sitting there and I'm like, wow, that it, there's a lot of truth to that.
1: Where, well, I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, so he wasn't wrong about everything. But, uh, you know, but I mean, I think that there's, yeah, that there are... It's to the advantage of those that sort of manage us. Right? Um, you know, multinational corporate industry doesn't want us being any smarter than we are. We're, we're much more malleable when we're stupid and being dumbed down by Dancing with the Stars and Monday Night Football and, you know, who knows what else on, on TV. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we live in, in, a, in a, you know, political system, that is no longer a representative, you know, political system. It's really a political system that is an oligarchy, you know, fundamentally, a corporatocracy. Corporations are fundamentally running everything, and um, and they've got the CIA's help with that, you know. I mean, I'm, I don't mean to get overly conspiracy theorists, but just because it's a conspiracy theory does not mean it's not
0: true. I, I think conspiracy theory discredits a lot of truth, and— uh, well, it well, you like know, that, you you know, that, doctors, that term doctors, actually came,
1: <laughs> that, that term was created by the CIA.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. In, it,
1: in it, relation it, it to you know, anybody who was going to question the narrative of the Kennedy assassination was just the wacko conspiracy theorist. Right. Even though, you know, clearly the, you know, anyway, I, we don't need to get into all that. <laughs> but, um, but regardless, yeah. So, so anybody that discounts the mainstream narrative is considered you know, some sort of wacko conspiracy theorist. Well, I'm, I'm here to tell you, if we're not questioning these things, we're in real trouble. And there's there's quality questioning. And then there's junk conspiracy, right? Um, the world is then, flat type stuff. <laughs> well, and I think some of those things are projected <laughs> to the, um, into the narrative just as a way of discrediting, you know, all forms of questioning, right? Yeah. You know, that's you're, you're good, just that's like, that's a that good point. Yeah. That, right? It, it's a way of, of just totally discrediting any dissension from the narrative at all.
0: Yeah. Uh, so oh, you're funny. one of those world is flat people. Oh, I right. got
1: <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. And then they're out there. You know, one of my, one of my best friends, uh, just for fun, joined the Earth Society just so that he could get this really cool f- globe <laughs> from them. <laughs> it's like a Scott Globe he has on his desk. Oh, and that's like, great. Well, and, oh, yeah.
0: What an amazing and, conversation and to have so that fun out fun on the coffee table.
1: <laughs> yeah. Anyway, totally getting off topic. But um, so... so uh,
0: primal anyway. Fat Burner. Who's yeah. Who needs that? Who needs Primal Fat Burner?
1: As far... It, 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 near as I can tell, pretty much everybody. And and again, one of the things that I do, obviously the book is all about adopting a fat-based metabolism, right? The term, the, the title of the book makes it sound like a weight loss book. Now, like I said, that'll be everybody's favorite side effect, but that's not the main thrust. I advance a couple of, um, of hypotheses in the book that as far as I know, haven't been advanced anywhere else. And what, what that involves is that number one, the diet, it's not just that dietary fat isn't as bad as we've heard all these years and, um, or that maybe it's okay or it's, it's, you know, it's becoming more okay as long as it's like olive oil and avocados and coconuts and stuff like that. But that dietary fat and, and, and uh, particularly dietary fat and fat-soluble nutrients from animal source foods are not only what is centrally optimizing um, for human health, uh, of central importance for the optimization of human health. But these things are literally central to what made us human in the first place. And I make a pretty exhaustive case. I made an even more exhaustive case in the, in the um, you know, in the original manuscript, which was over 300,000 words and more than 3,000 peer-reviewed references, uh, to which Simon & Schuster looked at that and said, yeah, no. Uh, we're not going to have that many words, you know. We, we <laughs> many, <with that>. words. <laughs> many words. many words. You know, we don't want it to be that science. pictures. <laughs> so they forced me to cut more than two-thirds of the content uh, and more than nine-tenths of the peer-reviewed references. But it still makes a pretty exhaustive case that I feel pretty good about in terms of providing people with, you know, both the evolutionary basis for these things, the physiological basis for what I'm saying, As well as, you know, the evidence from what we now know about the benefits of a fat-based metabolism, which are so extensive that it's arguable on that basis alone, that this is meant to be the natural metabolic state of humankind. Yeah. And doable for everybody, but it's going to be easier for some people and faster for some people to do that than others.
0: Now, but is you've mentioned that a couple times. Is that like for people that that produce optimal amounts of enzymes for breaking down fats and metabolizing fat better? Or what are you thinking about when you mention that it's easier for some people than others?
1: Well, some people have, um, you know, they have bigger blood sugar issues than others. If, if you're already, you know, severely hypoglycemic going into this or you're diabetic or you're, you know, mm. other yeah, things, yeah. it's going to be a more... Careful, systematic process of adopting this way of eating, You and that can be able to do it necessarily in a crash kind of way. Um, there are other things too. There are a lot of things that can potentially interfere with the process. You know, having food sensitivity issues that are unidentified, or environmental sensitivities, maybe uh, some undiagnosed autoimmune condition, which is more common than anybody realizes. You know, could also kind of thwart things because. Those inflammatory, systemic inflammatory processes tend to kind of drive um, blood sugar issues. You know, they can make it hard for people to start to lose weight or start to use ketones effectively, but it makes it all the more worthwhile and important. People with thyroid problems um, are also going to find it inherently difficult uh, sometimes because I've never met somebody with Hashimoto's that didn't have blood sugar issues up the wazoo. Right. Right. Uh, and and so again, it's one of those things that has to be that has to be uh, addressed in a systematic fashion. Uh, it's going to be harder for some of these folks than others. Um, the other thing to consider too during that whole process of adopting a fat-based metabolism, shifting from a sugar-based metabolism, is that not all the symptoms are related. Again, to uh, either opiate you know sensitivities or to uh that metabolic purgatory there's also detox just basic detox you're eating a lot cleaner you know part of what um i make a case for uh in you know in my um you know in, in my dietary approach is that you know the, you, you this is this is a low carb moderate protein Higher percentage fat dietary approach. In other words, the food's not floating in fat, right? It's not swimming all over the plate. But dietary fat has double the calories of of protein or carbs, and so it's it's it takes less to do more, right? Um, and it it's it starts to occupy the calories on your plate much more rapidly, even when it's not necessarily visible to the eye. Um, if you're cooking in fats, or you're using fattier cuts of meat, or you know, you've got sliced avocado on the plate or olives or whatever. Um, um, it, there are all kinds of ways of, of incorporating fat. But, but all of this has to be, in my view, of uncompromising quality, right? 100% organic, 100% um, that all of the animal source foods have to come from 100% grass-fed and finished or naturally foraged sources,
0: and, and this uh, is because the pesticides and herbicides and hormones jack us up that much?
1: Well, there's not just that, but it's the fatty acid profile is completely different. You're much more likely to get an inflammatory profile. You're much more likely, yes, to get contaminants mm. that are likelier to compromise than support your health. If you're consuming, um, you know, or things that animals that have been fed GMOs and whatever else, mm. you know, a particular, you know, CAFO diet. Part of the issue also is to establish a new standard. Like I was, I was uh, challenged by my publisher that you know they're like, yeah, all this grass fed stuff and organic, whatever. That's all fine and good, you know. But shouldn't uh, you just say just do the best you can? And I said, yeah, no.
0: <laughs> yeah I we know. need we need less hand holding. We need more like right. you know that would have told people together. what they
1: wanted to hear, right? Yeah. And I think a lot of authors are willing to do that. Just there's an eighty twenty rule, or you know, whatever. No. That, you know, if you shoot for the stars, maybe you'll hit the moon, right? But it's, it's really important that you not be compromising in your choices. Because yeah. if you're compromising in the quality of your food choices, you're compromising in the quality of your health. You're going to make it that much harder.
0: Especially early on. Like, if you can't go all in early on, there's almost always going to be benefits left on the table, like dabbling. You know, like, oh, yeah. I kind of went paleo. I kind of went keto. I kind that all brain. the time.
1: And it's like, you know, it's like being a little bit pregnant. Either you are or you're not.
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: And so you really need to kind of make a a choice. Unfortunately, a lot of people aren't willing to make the choices they need to make until the pain of the problem starts to exceed the pain of the solution, (laughs) which is nature. You know, and hopefully by then it's not too late. It's like they get a bad diagnosis or something. Right. And then suddenly, oh, crap, I guess I need to start thinking about this. Yeah. It's like you, you needed to be on this already. But. I, I believe there's always hope for recovery as long as you're above ground, but it becomes a lot harder to fix something once it's broken, right? Totally so, agree. But the other issue is that too, 97% of the meat produced in this country is being produced by conventional feedlot operations, cattle operations. We need to change that paradigm. And uh, you know we need to set certain standards for what we are and aren't willing to put up with in the marketplace. Now, I know that, that what, I'm, what I'm presenting here as an approach may sound a little extreme for some folks, but I would submit that I'm not the one that's extreme. Look, for, for hundreds of thousands of years, these things were kind of a matter of course for us. We didn't have to think about it. These were our standards. Now, what's extreme is the marketplace. It's the environment. It's the contaminants in our air, water, and food supply. It's, it's our compromised genome. It's all the GMOs. It's the EMFs. It's the you know radiation contamination. We are being compromised by so many things. And as I was talking about earlier, we're not wired to be concerned about these seemingly intangible threats to our to our you know to our lives. And yet, you know, we are all um, extremely endangered. And and we're facing a very very th- these threats. I think are quite extreme. So if you're dealing with something extreme, you may have to take what you what you initially might think of as an extreme measure in order to address that. These things, none of this should be considered extreme. All of these things should be considered kind of normal.
0: Yeah. Um, it's it all depends on where the person is starting at. You've mentioned a few things with with like our, our mismatch here and like if we were hunting. We need a lot less meat because it's hard to catch and kill meat. You know, you don't have someone else doing it for you. Similarly, like when, when we would catch and kill something, we'd see the animal, right? And there's a big difference between eating like a sickly diseased cow and like a healthy grass fed cow that's pasture. And like that separation and industrialization of the entire process has like taken us away from being able to like catch our food. And know what that's like. Or and
1: even raise, you know, yeah, or raise it in your backyard. I mean, this is something yeah. we could be doing, right? You know, and yeah. have control over what the animals, I mean, I'm increasingly advocating the idea of either hunting, you know, hunting and fishing and growing your own food or, um, you know, raising it yourself in your backyard or whatever you have to do to unplug from the mainstream system because it's increasingly compromised in ways that, um, you know, industry is just finding different ways of telling us what they think we want to hear. Yeah. Uh, everything is further eroding. The organic standard has become a, you know, just ridiculous. Um, and, and, you know, lots of things are being called grass-fed that aren't necessarily grass-fed, right? Uh, and we're, we'll fight tooth and nail for something like getting the trans fats out of the food supply and how many careers were destroyed over, you know, the exposure of, of, of that research and whatever else. And now we finally have, you know, as of this year, it's supposed to be out of the food supply and we're patting ourselves on the back because it says trans fat free on the label. And then you look more closely at your package of microwave popping corn and you see the top ingredient is, is partially hydrogenated soybean oil because the way the laws are written allow industry to include a certain amount of trans fat before they have to declare it on the label. And they get to decide what that serving size is. All right? That's oh one of the Right, so there are all kinds of little catches or like there are the, 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 you know, the vegetarian, you know, spreads, right? The the, uh, the margarines or whatever um, that say now trans fat free. Well, all industry has done is they've traded out the trans fats for intersterified fats, which are every bit as bad, if not worse. Okay, um, those are just as devastating to your health as the trans fats were. Only now, there's very little Reliable way of identifying that on the label, they're not required at all to disclose it anyway, and you're just sort of left scratching your head. It's, it's the same
0: thing they've been doing with plastic, right? BPA. Like BPA. We'll, call, we'll put some BPS in there.
1: It's always like, great, right, we got BPA out of the, you know, <laughs> yeah.
0: whatever. You know, it's BPA is out.
1: BPS like, is up. <laughs> you know, you know, power to the people. Yeah. Don't kid yourselves bisphenols are still in every form of plastic and bisphenol S is normally what replaces BPA and it's as bad, if not worse, as BPA. And all industry has done is it's bought itself another ten or twenty years um of lying to us and obfuscating, you know, the the, the truth of all of this in order to maintain their profits. And so <laughs> Capitalism, folks, is not going to save us, you know? It's yeah, that's done.
0: what I was going to ask. Is it pulling our dollars away from saying, like, if we don't want, you know, factory farms, then we buy less of that type of meat and less of like stuff from the fast food restaurants that really supported it in mass? Or what, what right. do you suggest? I, th-
1: I think it's critical if we want any kind of future to our food supply at all, that we make it clear. I mean, one thing that's sort of useful is that there are very thin lines of margin of, of profitability for grocery stores, right? So when I go to a grocery store and I'm seeing, you know, like it was one store I went to, it was a grand opening of a store down a little ways from me and they had a big meat counter. And I said, what do you have for for hundred percent grass fed meat here? Oh, well, no, we have this really great corn fed, you know, whatever. And I said, so you need to know that I will not be shopping here. And also, you know, I, I, I I'm going to make a point of telling other people not to shop here.
0: Oh, snap. You you play dirty. I well, like the it. only
1: kind of meat I'm willing to purchase is 100% grass-fed <laughs> yeah. and finished meat. So when you guys decide to switch over to that, I'll be singing it because I'll be equally vocal either way. I'll sing it from the rooftops. For you. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but, you know, but I'm not just the curmudgeon that way. I mean, I will let you have to let somebody who's in charge know.
0: For sure. Know,
1: you don't like about what they're doing and why you won't shop there don't just walk out in a huff and say wow you know this canola oil in the in the in the uh you know the what do you call the deli area i'm just not going to ever shop here again well i mean yeah definitely don't eat that canola oil laced crap but you've got to let them know what they're doing wrong so that they understand why you're not shopping there anymore otherwise you haven't really accomplished anything
0: yeah yeah that's a good point
1: and, and the other, you know, side to this is that, and it's, that's equally important, is that, you know, there was a local market also up the street, different place, that switched over from kind of conventional meat and produce and really started carrying a lot more organics and started carrying, you know, grass-fed meats from local farms and stuff. And I got the manager and I said, you need to know. That Give I a big do. kiss. Awesome. You know, awesome. <laughs> this is yeah. fantastic. And I want you to know that I will, not only will I be shopping here because of that but I will be telling everybody else I know to shop here too, you know, and I meant it.
0: Um, That's huge. And you're different than like the, the delusional person who's like, you know, talks with maybe 10 people in a day. You're like, I got millions of people that want to know where to, <laughs> yeah, where to eat. Yeah. I,
1: I don't overblow self importance. I really don't. But, but I mean, I, I know I have a visible platform and I, I try to use it for good wherever I can. And so from that perspective, wherever it is I have influence, I want to exert that influence in the best possible way. And it's I, you know, trying to do the right things in the right way for, for the right reasons. Right.
0: I, I, I love that. And like, I, I appreciate that level of activism because I mean, until recently with, with everything that we've been talking about the whole episode, there was a part of me that was like, well, if it keeps getting more and more ridiculous here, I'm just going to move somewhere else. Right. There isn't anywhere else, and, and, and there was also a part of me that's like, That's not being the change that you want to see.
1: Well, that's true, and and the thing that people need to realize is that no matter where you are, this trend will find you. Yeah, you know, New Zealand right now. You know, Monsanto's already there doing test blocks, even though it's not they're not officially allowing GMOs in the in the marketplace there. But you know, when I went to New Zealand and I and I you know traveled through, I was shocked at how unaware the public there was about these issues. They hear they have this seemingly pristine environment and all these animals grazing on beautiful green grass, and it seemed so idyllic. And they had no idea what they had. And I thought they're going to lose it, and they're in the process of losing it, right? So, um, and, and Monsanto's already teaching at the colleges there, you know, at the at the agricultural colleges. Monsanto's teaching some of those classes now. They're like, oh, you need to get with the times. You need to get with, you know, look, we can't we can't be selfish. We need to feed the world. GMOs are the only way to do it. And, and they're going to lose all that. They're going to lose it. Um, and, but it's everywhere, everywhere we are. And you may be living out in the country someplace and trying to grow your little organic garden plot and the glyphosate, the glyphosate's drifting over along with the GMO <laughs> pollen, you know, onto your field and contaminating. You're,
0: you're in a valley <laughs> underneath the Monsanto cornfield.
1: <laughs> I know all kinds of people living outside Portland. There, look, I live in an oasis when it comes to this sort of stuff you can't swing a cat, a dead cat around this town without hitting, you know, a farmer ranch that is grass feeding their animals or restaurants that are advertising. You know, we have, you know, gluten-free menus and organic grass fed meat. And, um, and. Well, you know, because you've I, talked with
0: a lot of managers.
1: <laughs> I, I have. Yes. I've spoken with quite a few managers. And then, you know, we have the, uh, you know, people, tons of people growing, you know, stuff in their backyards here and raising chickens and rabbits and whatever. It's just, you know, and, and lots of organic uh, farms surrounding the area. But I know people running some of these organic farms and they're continually frustrated with what's drifting over. And it's like, well, yeah, a plane was crop dusting, you know, the farm next door and the wind's drifting it all over onto their stuff, right? So we, we have to set, we have to let the marketplace know what it is we are willing and not willing to put up with. And it means taking an extreme stand if you need to make extreme changes, and I'm telling you, it's like the noose is gradually tightening. We're, we're like these, sometimes <laughs> like, like we're like boiling frogs, right? Thinking that we're sitting in a hot tub in Vegas somewhere. Um, and we're, we're really blind to a lot of the things that are adversely impacting our health. Again, we're, we're not wired, and believe me, industry knows this. We're not wired to be alert and, re- and responsive to invisible threats. Yeah. And what, we, what we're being conditioned to accept is a state of complacency, um, where we're being made to be complacent about uh, just believing whatever the news tells us is true. You know, we're being, com- we're complacent, uh, we're being um, led to a sense of sort of complacency that whoever the medical authorities are, the mainstream authorities and almost anything, you know, they're the ones that know and we just sort of accept whatever the headlines and the newspaper tell us about what's true and what isn't true. Um, we need to wake up a little bit and, and smell the, um, the organic coffee and, um, yeah, I I don't drink coffee anymore, but whatever the tea, whatever. (laughs) I don't miss it.
0: uh, I don't miss it. I don't miss it.
1: (laughs) Right. Exactly. (laughs) All the grass fed meat cooking me on the breakfast grill. Um, and, um, you know, and, and recognize that nobody's coming to rescue us. There's nobody coming to make these changes for us. We're the ones we've been waiting for. Right. Yeah. We're the ones that not just, not just need to make these changes in ourselves, but we need to stop bickering amongst ourselves about who's right about this or that, or is it, you know, pro-carb or pro-paleo you know, versus vegan or whatever. You know, it, oldest, oldest tactic in the book, divide and conquer. Yeah. We, we are, as a species, and I make this case too, we are much more alike than we are unalike. This whole everybody's different thing has been way overplayed. It's become a trite thing that is wrong. What yeah. defines us as, as a human species are not those, not those uh, differences, not those things that are different about us, but those things in which we have in common, right? Yeah. So yes, there is to some degree of bioindividuality. That's the nuance layered on top of what is foundationally true for all of us. There is not a different book of anatomy and physiology for every person watching this. So it's not like, well, some people should be eating a high carb diet, some people are better off low carb, some people are better off vegetarian or vegan. No. You know, we we're all we all have the same organs, um, we have the same neurotransmitters, the same hormones, we all have a blood pH of between 7.35 and 7.45 or else. Um, and we have the same fundamental requirements. We evolved, we all evolved as under-gatherers. And for the vast majority of that history, it appears we were mostly hunters. Um, We are best designed to eat an animal-sourced diet Um, that is, and, you know, again, what we layer on top of that, even though carbohydrates are not essential, um, fibrous vegetables and greens, I think, are more important to us today than they ever used to be during our long evolutionary history because they're able to supply us with these extra antioxidants and phytonutrients and uh, the extra bulk, which is nice for because this is a bit of a form of modified caloric restriction because you're not eating as much food with this. Um, And so the bulk is more satisfying in some respects. It also helps provide fodder for our poor embattled microbiome and provides additional diversity in our diets to help diversify uh, those gut flora, which is really important for the functioning of our immune systems. And so the fibrous vegetables and greens are less likely to compromise and more likely to kind of add an extra benefit on top of that foundational uh, moderate protein, high percentage fat diet. And um, again, I'm not saying that our ancestors ate this way. I'm saying that that those ancestral principles have been modified to to be optimized for not just longevity related interests, but also for the uniquely challenging world that we live in today. And yes, oh, I consider this a universal foundational thing.
0: I, I love it. And for the listeners, for people that are resonating with Nora's message, get primal fat burner, get primal body, primal mind, pick them up, dig in. And 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 you'll, I mean, if, if you're resonating with this stuff, you're going to absolutely love her books. And Nora, I have a feeling that you and I could probably do like, we should We should, We should. should maybe do like a 24 a hour podcast-a-thon one day, like those old dance-a-thons <laughs> from the 50s. I'm not sure that would be We're enough like, time. We're going to drop knowledge bombs for a full day and just like, I, I think we actually could. If If you're up for it, um, maybe a couple rapid fire questions like, and, yeah, and, sure. and then we'll kind of let people know how to stay in touch with you and keep up with sure. all the, the, the amazing things that you're doing. Is that?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool?
0: Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm right.
1: perfectly happy. Yeah.
0: All right. Beautiful. Um, number one mistake people make, um, on a ketogenic diet.
1: I would say the overconsumption of protein is probably the most common. It's the easiest thing. Right, ah,
0: so when you're saying plant or animal based diets, you're not talking about eating half your plate. I'm not, I'm not talking about
1: eating a high meat diet, right. Or talking right. about moderating protein, which is not, you know, it, it also makes this a lot more economically viable as well as sustainable right? Love (laughs) it. This country to think in terms of, you know, not being fed unless there's this much food, you know, you go to the buffets and things like that. And there's this mountain of food on your plate and we're not fed unless, you know, we're just, just this. And, and the the fact is 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 how easy it is to be satisfied with a lot less. So start with the minimum necessary dose and increase as you need to, in terms of what's on your plate. But but it's really important for a variety of reasons to moderate that protein intake and not exceed what is fundamentally required for your own regeneration and repair on a daily basis.
0: Totally it's agree, like, especially great- with mTOR and as we get older and not yes. you know, some of those cancer pathways. <laughs> 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 um, right,
1: in addition to the, you know, the conversion you know, the, of, of those excess protein oh, yeah. sugar, right? Yeah. A- a- anywhere from 36 to 58% efficiency, depending on who you talk to. Um, yeah. I think it's probably closer to 36, percent but Hans Krebs, you know, who wasn't a slouch believed that it was actually closer to a 58% efficiency.
0: Are we talking about gluconeogenesis for the purpose of me throwing out a big word that makes me sound smart? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you
1: sounded very smart when you said that.
0: Gluconeogenesis. Yeah. All right. Neogenesis. Awesome. Yeah. Um, nor are I, it, yeah,
1: yeah. So yeah, you're not going to spike your blood sugar with that, but you are going to kind of keep yourself kind of more dependent on sugar. And that's something and, and that, not
0: making as many ketones.
1: Right. And they will not give you as many. And so it's not more ketones are better. It's about making your own ketones, right? F- through this process of, of minimizing carbohydrate intake and moderating protein and using fat as that primary source of caloric intake and primary source of fuel. And, and then you naturally, healthfully generate your own ketones. And then, of course, beyond that initial phase, it becomes a matter of then if becoming if effectively adapted to the utilization of those ketones on a full-time basis. So just because you're producing ketones doesn't necessarily mean you're using them efficiently. This is where I have a problem with people that say, you know... Yeah, you know, I ate pizza last night, but um, it, it, this was a very, very well-known, um, uh, like, uber well-known blogger. That's like, yeah, you know, I, I had I can have pizza, and if all I have to do is just take all this MCT oil the next morning, and my ketones are right back up there. Well, yeah, so
0: along with the blood sugar, right maybe? There,
1: along with the blood sugar, right? So what are we doing when we're either taking exogenous racemic ketone salts, or of course now. We have at least ketone esters coming onto the market, which is much better, which yeah. is, which is you know, definitely healthier. Um, but still, you know, taking ketones exogenously, and, and of course, the way these things are marketed, you don't even have to change your diet. All you can do, you can just mix these into a fruit smoothie and you know, slug them down, and wow, now you're bam, you're ketogenic. More ketones are better. No, now you have high ketones, and you have high blood sugar.
0: And yeah. Not a good combination. This would
1: never happened except under one circumstance, and that's ketoacidosis, right? This is not a, a healthy state to be in. And I think that there's going to be, you know, people are setting themselves up for some big problems if, if that's what they're doing. This is what,
0: not so not for a, someone for someone that's following your primal fat burner ketogenic diet, right? Let's say they find that in taking Ketone esters, or, or you know, a, a form of beta-hydroxybutyrate salt. They, without caffeine, they feel way, way better. Yeah. Is that still of concern to you? And are there, if if yes, are there biomarkers that you would be looking at where you're like, see, that's a problem. That's why. Well, with racemic
1: ketone salt, you're only, you can only measure half of what's there because half of it's synthetic. I mean, it's a synthetic product, right? So some ha- are are. Some of the natural form is there, and then the other half is synthetic. So half of everything that's there, you can't even read on a ketone meter. That's a problem. Um, but but regardless, I, I you know there is a potential place for these things in the process of adopting a ketogenic diet, kind of reducing the pains of adopting it and helping you adopt it maybe a little bit faster. Again, bicycle training wheels, maybe not essentially, um, and also. You know, you have your, your really high-end athletes or whatever who are looking for the extra performance edge who find, sometimes find that these things give them a performance edge. Well, if, you know, if you want to take it before the race, then okay. Just don't make this a daily part of your dietary regimen because, again, the name of the game, if you're wanting to be healthy, if you're wanting to be optimally healthy, the idea is conditioning your body to produce its own natural ketones.
0: Make your own ketones.
1: Make your own damn ketones, right? (laughs) As you need to, and then there's the word I said I wasn't. I was said I wasn't going to use expletives. Oh well, (laughs) Um, and and then be able to make effective use of them, right? That's the magic is being able to make effective use of your own ketones. That's what's health optimizing. Um, Having ketones there, you know, you know, it's 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 not enough. And it's it's that's not necessarily the thing, and and the, that's the problem with like the the paleo uh, genre and the ketogenic genre is they've become so heavily commercialized, right? It, it, they've come to mean something different to everybody claiming to practice them, which is one reason why I've actually coined an entire new term, um, and I, I I decided I'm just going to create my own genre because I'm tired of trying to fit myself like a square peg into a round hole, so I'm calling it primogenic, right? Primogenic. Primalgenic. Yes. I like and, it. and, um, you know, and what we're talking about with, with, you know, with primalgenic is basically, you know, a, a diet that is uncompromising and in alignment with, you know, a diet that's uncompromising and in alignment with our human evolutionary and genetic heritage, right. That's very low in utilizable sugar or starch, very, very low in utilizable carbs, right. Sugar, or starch, of all kinds, including the so-called natural sugars uh, like honey or God forbid agave, which is actually worse in some ways than high fructose corn syrup, much higher in fructose. Um, it's moderate in protein, so about you know 0. 0.8 grams per kilogram of your estimated ideal body weight um, is sort of where I start with that. And I will either add or subtract depending on what's going on with a person. And I specify that in the book.
0: Wait, you, you just dropped, you just dropped another bomb. What was that calculation for Okay,
1: 0. 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram of estimated ideal body weight.
0: So take your pounds, divide it by what? 2.2. That gives you right. the kilograms, gives you multiply kilogram by 0. 8, and then multiply that
1: by 0. 0.8. And that is the total amount of protein that you want to shoot for in an entire day. And you Nora,
0: take- that's that's why I love you because you give that clarity in your stuff where you're like there's no gray area like oh just stop eating everything and you'll be good. <laughs> <laughs> you're like no. here's how much protein to start with and then you may want to adjust but at least it gives people some of that clarity and right. uh, and and differentiates you right. and the, and the primal genic from keto or paleo or just, you know, a lot of these templates.
1: Right, right. Yeah, I, I'm very, very clear and I, and I walk people through it. So, you know, don't be intimidated by this right offhand. I mean, if you get my book, it'll, it'll be clear to you how to go about this. And then, you know, I, it, it involves a high percentage of dietary fat. It's not more fat is better necessarily either. You can overdo fat like you can overdo anything right? Yeah. You want that fat from uncompromising sources. You want it to be, you don't want it to be oxidized or rancid. You don't want to be doing crappy vegetable oils, right? You want a high percentage of those fats and fat soluble nutrients to come from uncompromising quality animal source foods um, as much as possible. And, and you, fatty acids and ketones are basically intended to be the primary source of fuel and glucose is strictly an auxiliary source of fuel right it's just kindling and it's just something that your body may need to switch to in the case of an emergency or extreme exertion then okay glucose kicks in you've got plenty for that you don't ever have to eat any for it it also includes a very wide variety of fibrous vegetables and greens that are cooked and raw or cultured as however you like them right nuts and seeds as you tolerate it not everybody tolerates fibrous vegetables and greens right yeah Nuts and seeds so you know i make provisions for that It's also very aligned um, with the foundational principles that are supplied to us by human longevity research. Uh, It takes into account the uniquely challenging world that we live in today. And it rationally assumes that human beings are much more alike than unalike in our design and in our foundational physiological makeup and all of that. And that fat burning is really the natural metabolic state of humankind. Bioindividuality, I readily acknowledge the presence of bioindividuality but I see that as mere nuance and not something that's truly foundational to anyone. Um, and it's also a dietary approach that reaches back to our earliest common beginnings um, and acknowledges that you know, we were forged by conditions that are quite a bit different than what we know in the Holocene today. And one of the, it's something that I bring up in Primal Fat Burner. For 2.6 million years, our planet had 120 more species of these massive herbivores, these megafauna that were, had extremely high fat content on them that we preferred to hunt. And, you know, the end of the last ice age, they all went away in the blink of an eye. Are we talking yeah.
0: about like wooly woolly mammoths and things of that nature? Yeah,
1: giant slods and giant oryx and, uh, you know, Irish elk, and I mean, they're just on and on and on, these Delicious. masses that <laughs> wandered all over everything. And, you know, one of the things that I noticed, unfortunately not in time for my manuscript to be handed in, I was really frustrated with this, because I was, going to give a talk and I wanted to find a really cool cave painting and I'm going through and I'm I'm seeing these cave paintings and I suddenly, you know, I'm gobsmacked with this thing that I'm seeing over and over again that, you know, that wherever we were depicting the animals that we tended to hunt, right? The prey animals that we hunted on cave walls, you know, I mean, we're talking about these extraordinary artists painting these things who could have painted things in, in very, you know, realistic fashion. But what you have are these tiny little heads, these big balloon bodies and these tiny little stick legs below. And, and almost universally, these animals show up as unnaturally, abnormally, disproportionately fat, like Macy's Day Parade fat. And I'm thinking, okay, were they just that distorted in their perceptions? Or were these paintings somewhat like sort of shamanic vision boards, if you will? where the uh, shaman was depicting something that they idealized as something they wanted to be able to successfully hunt. In other words, fat was, we, we were fat hunters. We, We were looking for, um, we valued fat above all else fat to us as a species means survival and, um, and survival when it comes to almost anything, trumps everything else. And so, so one of the things that I talk about in my book, and we don't have time to go into in a lot of detail here, but, and one of the things that inspired this book was some time that I spent living less than 500 miles from the North Pole with a family of wild wolves <laughs> for an entire what? summer. Yeah. Yeah. Long story. It's like a jungle book. Podcast, right? <laughs> and what I can tell you, having observed wolves hunt their natural prey in the wild, and this is true of all carnivores, is that they will go after the sick, the weak, the old, the infirm, not because they prefer those foods, but because that's what's easiest for them to catch, right? Huh. They didn't have the cunning or the technology or the opposable thumbs that allowed them to develop spears and tools to be able to bring down the healthiest, fattest, sassiest animals. That's what human hunters have in, in all in indigenous cultures, primitive cultures, that's what they went after. What they targeted were not the sick, the old, the infirm, even though they would have been easier for us to catch. They were not the most desirable. We went for the fattest, sassiest, healthiest animals that they were. Even though not only were they more difficult, they were also much more dangerous to catch, and that's what we went after. Um, that's we're unique among carnivores in that in that respect. That we and even once you know the you know the ice age uh, you know ended and all the megafauna went away, we became the fact became extra precious to us. One of the things that I point out from the work of Weston Price, right? Who and I'm sure your listeners have to know who he is, right? So he covered over 100,000 miles over 10 years studying in the 1920s and in the 30s, um, studying, you know, all kinds of, uh, primitive indigenous cultures, Aboriginal cultures around the world who are still eating their traditional, you know, diet. And it, as you can imagine, they were, they were consuming huge varieties of diets, regard you know, where they were. Um, like he was in the Aboriginal Outback, he was in, you know, Northern Alaska and in the Arctic. And he was in South America and he was in Africa and he was in, you know, the remote Loschenthal Valley of, of Switzerland, looking at some traditional cultures there. And he went to all these different places and wherever people were consuming their traditional diets, they did really well. And obviously those diets were really varied from the tropics to the Arctic, to the, you know, desert areas and things like that.
0: But it all came from the earth.
1: Well, so, so here's the deal. This is the message most people take away, including those claiming to represent his work. This is their takeaway message. Just eat real food, right? Just eat food in its unadulterated forms and it's all good. Well, we don't live in Western prices and time anymore, I might add. And just because something came out of the ground and you can put it in your mouth, chew it up, swallow it and not drop dead doesn't mean that it's optimizing your health. You know, what matters is whether or not your foundations are in place enough To whether the degree to which you're able to tolerate that well, right? Um, So, but Weston Price was a smart guy. He asked himself uh, a really important question. He said, okay, so with all these diverse diets and all these, you know, optimally healthy people all the way around the world, what did all of those optimally healthy diets have in common? And there were two things he discovered. Number one, that in every case, um, that there was, Every single culture that was optimally healthy ate as many animal source foods as were available to them. There were no vegan, you know, cultures that he came across anywhere, and he was disappointed about that. He looked for them, but they weren't there. But but the more animal source foods, and the greater the variety of animal source foods, boy, the healthier and more more robust the culture. But number two, in every single case with every single culture, the number one most venerated, sought after, um, food that was considered critically important for for health and reproduction and everything else were those foods that were highest in fats and fat soluble nutrients, period. So therein, what you have is kind of the foundational framework for what's true for health optimization for virtually everyone. And from there, the rest is nuance. You you, you extrapolate from that. Now among the people that he considered the healthiest, whose diets had the fewest mood parts, we have the Inuit who absolutely yeah. met that criteria, right? Um, and so I'm not saying we all need to just eat blubber and call it good. Uh, you know, I'm not saying we all need to mimic that or that the, that the Inuit represent the pinnacle of what everybody should be doing. Be, but, um, you know, I do think, like I say, fibrous vegetables and greens have a lot to offer us. And eating, you know, there's much variety in our diets is that, that we, that, oh, at least when it comes to foods that aren't likely to be compromising in some way is really important. But that foundational framework, I believe is a universal foundational framework. According so it to, was, like, it was the, the two things. Address our bio-individuality.
0: Yeah, for sure. So the, the, the healthiest cultures ate a wide variety of, of animal foods and the greater the variety, often the greater the health. And right. it was primarily fat based. So fat, fat soluble nutrients.
1: That was the thing that was most important. In the Aboriginal, and it's not just about cold places, and the Aboriginal outback, um, if an Aboriginal hunter out in the middle of the outback desert, you know, killed a kangaroo and he went up and poked that kangaroo and found there wasn't enough fat on the body of that kangaroo, he'd leave it out in the sun to rot and go find a, a fatter and sassier one.
0: Right. <laughs> I don't they, know why that's funny.
1: Absolutely <laughs> valued fat. <laughs> it sounds
0: like probably. so much work to kill it. And then you're like, no, nope, I'll I'm go get sorry, another one. <laughs> you know, because they
1: know that, that too much lean meat is is just going to make you sick.
0: Yeah. You know, it,
1: not nourishing past a certain point. Um, and so, and again, part of, part of what's also important and that we didn't really I didn't say this is that nose to tail factor, right? That uh, yeah. what we call meat today, this isn't just about eating like steak and chicken, you know, this is about becoming either trying to become a little more adventurous and, and incorporating more organ meats in your diet as, as you, as you can, and then bone marrow and all these wonderful things because there are fat-soluble nutrients in a lot of these um, organs and and, and other tissues that are enormously beneficial and most people are kind of deficient in. Um, There are things you can do to supplement with, because there are people freeze-drying encapsulated. Yeah.
0: Are you a fan of those?
1: Um, I, am a fan in those, uh, of those as an alternative for somebody that absolutely refuses to eat those Bet, foods.
0: Yeah, okay. So it's better than nothing, but not better. Yeah. Than the there world. are
1: a couple of different companies now and I'm forgetting, uh, there's a new brand new one, ancestral something or other. Oh,
0: yeah. No. I just picked up a bottle of something. Yeah. I probably, yeah,
1: um, I've been well, in contact well, with them and I'm favorably impressed with what they're trying to do. Um, I, 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 whoops, I don't, I don't have that handy right now, but
0: that but anyway, I was, I was going to ask as a rapid fire question, like your number one supplement, if, if, if Nora was alone on a desert uh, Island or something, what's like the one supplement that you would bring with you or, or, uh, or are you not, a supplement, not a supplement lady?
1: Well, okay. So, uh, oh, it's called ancestral supplements.
0: Ancestral supplements. Okay, that yeah, makes sense. You probably supplement. could have just made up that name and been right. We could
1: have made it up and uh, would have been ancestral good. ancestral supplements yeah, or something. It's, it's called ancestral supplements. Um, I'm just in contact with them now, and um, yeah, uh, but you know, their stuff comes from New Zealand, um, and I'm all forgetting stuff from the Southern Hemisphere because it's much less contam- uh, uh, much less contaminated. Um, and uh, you know, they're using good processing methods, and they're doing what they can to retain. Uh, they know the vitamin A content of their liver and all that. That's awesome, you know. Uh, if I had to pick, uh, I mean, there are a couple things that I do every day. I do a, a, a liposomal glutathione product called RediZorb. Um, Ooh, nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's that's one that's uniquely able uh, to be absorbed and bypassing the digestive you know, breakdown of the glutathione, right? And you notice a difference with that? I really notice an effect with that within seconds. I notice an effect with Whoa, it. Whoa. And, and there are a lot some... of other liposomal glutathione products out there.
0: Yeah, right? I'm I seeking health.
1: Yeah, I and I, and I don't want to, I love Ben Lynch, so I don't want to poo poo anything. I've just never seen immediate effects with any other glutathione supplement than that one now yeah. um apex energetics just created one and I'm, my jury's still out on it
0: they're um, great
1: yeah they, they are i mean the uh, Datis karazian is i think one of the great medical geniuses of our time uh, and he helped formulate that and it includes some precursors to liposomal uh, it has liposomal glutathione in, in addition to precursors to glutathione in it and i like that um i'm starting to kind of play around with it and my jury's still out but, um, you know, if you call let's say hey, because they they know me very well there, and it might, it might you know, get you some extra consideration. But right. anyway, um, I'm going to
0: get some Redizorb just to try it. I want to feel that, yeah. that immediately.
1: You know, and it's a liquid. You just put a little in a glass and add water and slug it down. And it has a little bit of a sulfury taste, but it's very doable. It's not completely gross. And I've tasted other liposomal liquid uh, glutathione products that really were gross. It's like, yeah. oh, my God, I don't think I can do this. You know, this stuff. You know, we call it stink drink. We jokingly call it swamp water at home. But, you know, it's actually not bad at all. But it works. Very, very doable. Very doable. Um, I'm also a big fan, and unfortunately, I don't have a bottle sitting here. There's a company called Walkabout, and uh, I don't have any financial ties, uh, you know, to Walkabout Health products at all. Um, They have an emu oil. And I know it sounds like wacky to be promoting an emu oil. Oh, yeah. But this particular genetic strain of emu, and I talk about it in primal fat burners. You can read about it there.
0: Oh, nice! It's
1: the highest natural source of vitamin K two, you know, animal source MK four K two anywhere um, that you can supplement with. In fact, it's the only natural source of MK four that you can supplement with. Wow! All the, the MK four supplements, the you know, the K two MK four are um, they're not uh, they're synthetic. And yeah. This- Not the same thing. With fat-soluble nutrients, you really want the natural form. MK4, vitamin K2, is the only form of vitamin K2 in the human brain. Now, a lot of people know, and that's the form that we evolved consuming. That's the K2 that established our requirement for K2. Now, there's a huge market right now for these MK7 forms of K2 the bacterially synthesized. What people don't realize is that the bacterial synthesis of K2, a lot of these things, some of these bacteria are genetically modified bacteria, some of these other, you know, the studies that are used to support their use are, tend to be extremely poor, uh, poorly constructed studies. Most of the research establishing the benefits of K2 have been done with natural MK4, and um, that's what we're designed to consume. And, you know, where it's found is in the fatty tissues of of naturally pastured animals only. So feedlot fat, animal fat, forget it. You won't find any there. But in 100% grass-fed and foraged meat and organs, um, you find a good amount of K2. Um, What's wonderful about this emu oil is just like off-the-charts levels of K2, which you can't overdose on, by the way. There's no such thing as overdosing. And so there's that. But what's also really awesome about it is that it contains a full complement of other types of fat-soluble nutrients, including CLA, right? Mm -hmm. Which is about as anti-cancer, and it's the most one of the most anti-cancer substances around. And it's a strictly animal-source food substance found exclusively in the fat of animals eating nothing but natural forage, right? Pasture grass, whatever. Um it's it's really high in CLA. It's it's it it has some of the other not any not in it high enough amounts to say that, oh yeah, I don't ever need to consume vit- anything, I don't ever need to consume liver now because there's enough vitamin A in this. No, there isn't. But some vitamin A is there, some beta-carotene is there, some vitamin D three is actually a pretty good amount of vitamin D three is in there. Um CLA is in there, uh there are some omega-3s in there, there are, you know, it's very high in oleic acid. Um, but it also has a complement of other, you know, like omega sevens, which have this marvelous uh, benefit.
0: And, and, and this so, is topical.
1: No, you, you, you—they're either liquid or capsules. What was like, what was the brand for the emu? Walkabout. Walkabout Health Products is the name of the uh, company, and the the couple that is running this company—they are the nicest and and most committed people in the world to doing the right thing in the right way for the right reasons. And they Ah, really, I like those people smart. I mean, call them up. You'll fall in love with them. They're wonderful. And they're really, really, everything that they do is so profoundly ethical and, and committed to doing the right things. It's a great product. And if you start to read the testimonials of people consuming this stuff, it's like, Holy crap, this is really amazing. But you can't apply it topically. As well.
0: I'm like I'm, I'm sold. I'm I'm getting I'm getting the RediZorb, the emo yeah. oil. I mean, this has been this has been one of my favorite interviews. I think I don't even know how <laughs> long it's been, but uh, I we could we could have kept going for a long time. Um, yes, and I think yeah. it's a testament for.
1: Yeah, I'm barely scratching the surface here. So that's yeah, so we'll I'm we'll we'll it. have to
0: do that 25 hour podcastathon. Yeah, just, yeah, it's
1: coming. <laughs> it's coming.
0: Um, yeah, Nora, so, thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, oh, you're your yeah, a wealth guess, spring of knowledge.
1: Well, thank you. I mean, I, I appreciate that. That's, that's very kind of you. Um,
0: Where you can know, people stay in touch with you? And, and, and right.
1: So my main website is primal body hyphen primal And also um, I teach a 52 week long, which is a you know, minimum of what I need. Um, you know, a certification course that is accredited and it's, it's about to become more accredited. Uh, and I would say more than half of the people subscribing are practitioners of some kind, of all different kinds, but also just kind of lay people who are really interested in kind of geeking out and getting really in-depth in these subjects and learning about different aspects of health. You can look at the curriculum at primalrestoration.com, which is the name of the course. Um, people subscribe to it, absolutely love it. I also do a weekly live Q&A for all of the subscribers so that people can ask questions so they're not just left to kind of scratch their heads and wonder you know, if there's something that wasn't fully covered or you know, whatever. So there's that. In addition to that, um, I'm also gonna be teaching uh, on this very subject we're talking about today. Uh, well, what's supposed to be the subject, which is adopting a fat-based metabolism. I'm teaching a five-day workshop at the Omega Institute in upstate New York, Rhinebeck, New York, uh, June 3rd through 8th. And uh, it's going to be awesome. And actually, the chefs there are actually going to be preparing foods out of my book. I have um, My book, Primal Fat Burner, has a 21-day uh, meal plan and about 60 recipes. You know, oh, for-
0: excellent. And
1: holding through that process. Uh, also, I'm going to be doing a two-day uh, event uh, starring moi, Uh, In London, um, October 13th and 14th. Oh, nice. Which is going to be good. And it's going to be geared a lot toward practitioners, but anybody, I mean, lots of people in the uh, lay public show up uh, for some of these events as well. And, you know, everybody's welcome. Uh, And so there's that coming up. Uh, Yeah, this is like more news than there is time to talk about it. But, yeah, uh, so primal fat burner, uh, yeah, it's, I, Get it? I, you know, it, it tells primal body, primal mind was more of a brain dump. It was like 15 books in one. Primal Fat Burner tells more of a story. It's more focused in on a particular, on, on this specific topic. And then I just cover it as thoroughly as Simon & Schuster would allow me to, <laughs> um, you know, in the allotted space. But I, I do provide a lot of substantial evidence. It's well footnoted um, and it's got good resources and all of that kind of thing. And uh, by the way, don't forget to read the last chapter in the book, which comes after the meal plan and the recipes. For some reason, they tuck the last chapter after all of that. <laughs> I don't want people to miss it because it's, it was a chapter that was- It really a- brings it all together. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. So, I mean, I'm a big picture thinker. It's not just, I love minutia, but we, you know, I bring a certain cosmology into what I talk about and, um, and I'm really into seeing the big picture and connecting big dots that a lot of people might not otherwise think to connect. Right. So that's what I think my strength is. And so, uh, I'm very, I'm proud of the book. I, I think it's a really good read.
0: Yeah. Beautiful. Well, I mean, you, you've given so much value in our, just in our conversation here, like I'm going to jump off and, buy a few hundred <laughs> yeah. dollars worth of worth of things. And I think well, I won't that much, but yeah. if they've, if they've gotten anywhere, you know, even just one nugget of value, they'll, they'll get so much from uh, primal fat burner. And, um, yeah, no Nora, worries. thank you. I appreciate it. This has been, this has been fun. You may be able to hear the landscapers showed up and they're going to <laughs> I'm and hearing like, you know, <laughs> ringing and all that
1: kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. We just, we just kept talking. I cleared my schedule and said, Oh, Nora's on a roll. But, uh, <laughs>
1: Yeah. My, my, my overriding tendency is to over deliver. So, you know, keep that in mind if you're interested in signing up for my course, or if you're interested in buying my book, you're not going to be skimped on in terms yeah. of quality information. You can really, you know, you can really take and make good. Well, it's,
0: it's great because it's also actionable. Like it's not drowning in theory or, you know, hyperbole. Right. It's like, it's like do this, take this. And um, as we're signing off, like a couple, a couple of listeners, uh, we're saying hi and giving you shout outs. Uh, oh, yeah. Sandra said, Nora, your books are amazing. You've empowered me to transform my life for the better. Like, that's a legit comment. I mean, it sounds like a testimonial I'm making up, but she said that. And then uh, Jesse was saying, hey, Nora, great to see you live. So everybody was loving you hanging out and everything like that and, and, and the body of work that you've created. So thank you, Nora. It's been, uh, I've had a lot of fun. Maybe oh, Yeah, it's phenomenal. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. Hope, uh, we, are you gonna be at Paleo FX? I'm gonna be there speaking.
0: I have not made plans for it yet. I don't I don't travel too too much. Um, but I may I may be there. We'll see.
1: Where where are you located?
0: I'm in Delray Beach, Florida. Like an hour oh, north of Miami. you're
1: at least you're not that far. Hop skipping a jump over to Texas. Come on.
0: Yeah, I, I should make it. I need to I need to go to those things. When is it again?
1: Uh it is coming up, I think the twenty eighth. Of of this month
0: is your talk ready? You already know what you're going to
1: do. I know what I'm going to do. It's going to be kind of on what we talked about today, in a, you know, in kind of a cursory fashion. And um, uh, I'm also going to be gracing the psychedelic panel alongside Dennis McKenna.
0: Oh! Whoa! Whole other
1: subject matter, but yeah. Now,
0: now I'm getting interested.
1: Very, you know, I'm very interested in in how the brain, uh, you know, addresses these substances and what, and then the impact that they have on consciousness, because that's a whole other area.
0: Totally, totally agree. I I wrote a psychedelics and controlled substances chapter in the Biohacker's Guide, and then pulled it because I didn't want to get sued before I'd even published a book and put it out there. (laughs) Huh? I mean,
1: I can see, you know, it's controversial, certainly, but...
0: Well, yeah. I mean, I was also talking about, I, I talked about a variety of substances and, um, and and just like as an illustration gave some, I, I discussed a little bit, not my own use, um, yeah. but other people using cocaine and amphetamines and things like that. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I don't want... I, I don't want, you know, to find like some high school kid, you know, keeled over with a copy of the biohacker's guide because he took that as, you know, using those. And, and, and yeah, it's oh, much safer with, yeah. with psilocybin and, you know,
1: right, 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 yeah, and, some, and
0: some of those things. But yeah, I, I, I'd be interested in hanging out and having that chat too.
1: Sure, sure. All right. Talk to you soon.
0: This episode is brought to you by the Violite. So many of the health experts and world-class athletes I've interviewed over the years have revealed one of their secret weapons to improve performance is photobiomodulation and specifically light therapy. And the Violite is one of the best photobiomodulation device companies on the market. I'm a big fan of their product the Neuro, which is a transcranial intranasal headset that gives efficient and effective whole brain stimulation. Its design utilizes photonic energy to stimulate cellular function in neurons and help improve brain bioenergetics. I'm also a big fan of the 655, which is a 655 nanometer red intranasal light therapy device that helps stimulate your body to move towards an ideal internal environment. It lowers inflammation, it kills pathogens in the blood, this low-level laser diode it releases coherent light in the visible red spectrum, and it irradiates the capillary-rich nasal cavity. I've found all three products to have a huge impact on maximizing my performance, and you can check them out at Vilight.com. That's V-I-E. LIGHT.com and for a special bonus to you guys, Violet is offering 10% off of your purchase. So all you have to do is use the discount code BIOHACKS that's B I O H A C K S at checkout and you will save 10% on your order. So check out the Violet product line, you will not be disappointed.